there. Thank you very much. We are in John 16. So this is Jesus's farewell speech, so to speak, to his disciples, the 11 of them. Judas has gone. He's already talking with the uh, uh, religious leaders to betray Jesus. He may already be looking for Jesus. So this was in the upper room. Most scholars think they've left the upper room and then they're, they're now walking and he's teaching them as he's walking and they're headed to Gethsemane where he'll be uh, arrested after praying to the Father. Um, so that's where we are. Uh, he's told them about the Holy Spirit. You find as you read these chapters, if you have a red letter Bible, it's mostly red letters. It's Jesus talking the, the longest portion on all of Scripture where you just hear a pretty long monologue with only a few questions here and there, all from Jesus. He's trying to calm down his uh, apostles. They are worried about being... Uh, deserted, so to speak, that he's going to be leaving them. I don't think they fully understand what's going on. We'll talk about that later tonight. Um, but he's told them he's going to give them the Holy Spirit, and he's going to tell more about that tonight. Um, uh, let's see. So he's uh, things are going to look really bad, is what he wants them to know. But um, he's going to he tells them that they're absolutely going to have great joy as well. So. Uh, we'll talk about prayer as well uh, as Jesus does. Anyway, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, those of you on Zoom, say amen or wave your hand or make a face or do something funny. Okay, great. Um, John chapter 16. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1, even though we're going to start discussing uh, in verse 6. All this I've told you, this is Jesus talking, all this I've told you that you will not fall away. And although they fall, they desert him. They don't fall away, do they? Um, Judas does. The other 11 do not. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God, like Paul was doing, right? Verse 3, they will do such things because they've not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you remember I warned you about them. I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. And Jesus, when he was with them, was the one taking most of the persecution, not Peter, James, John, and Andrew and the others. But now, verse 5, I'm going to him who sent me. He means God the Father. Notice he speaks of God as if it's a, that's his destination. He doesn't say, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to him. I'm going to God. And they're synonymous, aren't they? If you're with God, that's heaven. I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? And we said last week that two people did ask him. Peter asked him and uh, Peter asked him and Thomas asked him. Peter asked him in chapter 13, verse 36, Thomas in verse, chapter 14, verse five. But they both ask him with a motive that is sort of poor me, poor us, you're leaving us. It's not about, we're not, they're not worried about him, where he's going, going to the cross, going to die for them, going to be in the grave three days, going to go to heaven. Tell us about heaven. It's really the motive is all about us. What about the violin playing? You know, poor me, poor us. So um, the heart of the question isn't, doesn't have a, a seriousness about it when they ask him. Rather, verse 6, Jesus says, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. What things? He's leaving going to be betrayed. Peter, the leader of the apostles, he told them a couple chapters ago, is going to deny him three times. That had to have gone over like a lead balloon as well. So 
You're filled with grief, and they were, he knows. Verse 7, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the helper, the counselor, depending on your translation, uh, it's parakletos in the Greek. It means all of those words, one that comes alongside to help. It's the Holy Spirit. Unless I go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you, the advocate. But if I go, I will send him to you. So they are so used to having Jesus around. He provides for them, protects them, teaches them. They really love him. So, of course, it's, he, they're sad that he's going to be leaving. He's saying, this is much better for you. Have you ever thought, as I have, I kind of wish I was alive at the time Jesus was on the earth, so I could watch the miracles and hear the teaching and, and follow him and what have you. I got news for you. I don't think it'd be that easy. I think you and I might not have believed in him. Oh, no, I know I would have faith. Listen, we believe because we have the Holy Spirit. Do these guys have the Holy Spirit? No. That's why they're always messing up, arguing about which one is the greatest. Can I sit on your left side and him on your right in heaven? And how many times should I forgive my brother? They're constantly asking questions. They don't have the Holy Spirit. You and I, if we were alive at that time, I think it would be hard to believe some dude from the sticks, Galilee, is the Messiah. I think, it, I think the miracles would be interesting to watch. I, enchant, I intend to check out the DVDs in heaven and watch them, if you can do that. Um, but I don't think it would be that easy. In a way, it's easier now. Because you and I have the whole Bible. They had the Old Testament, no New Testament yet. We have the whole Bible. We see 2020 hindsight. Oh, that meant this. And we've all been taught and what have you. These guys are winging it going, I don't understand all this. What do you mean you're leaving? I left my business. Uh, Peter left his wife temporarily and kids. You're leaving? They can't believe it. He's telling them, basically, translation, without the Holy Spirit, you cannot spread this Christianity thing worldwide. With him, there's no limit to what you can do. They turned their world upside down because they had the Holy Spirit. Why couldn't Jesus just tell God, I'm going to stay here, bring the Holy Spirit now? Have you ever asked yourself that? He has to go to heaven to have the Holy Spirit come back. Okay, so couldn't he just ascend to heaven? No. Why? Because he came to die. He came to die for the sins of the world in the place of Jeff and Joanne and Joe and everyone else that believes. And the reason he has to die first is there's a blockage, a wall of separation between God and men, which is sin. Okay, but we'll try to be better. No, we won't. There's still no payment for the past sins unless he dies and rises from the dead and then ascends to heaven. There can be no Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit cannot indwell a body that's full of guilt and sin. It just can't happen with the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, with Jesus's death and resurrection, he goes to heaven. The sacrifice he's made is accepted by God. We know that because he rose and ascended and was received at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews says that and elsewhere. So then he can send the Holy Spirit, which can go into each and every individual believer, no matter where they are and wherever they head out to. Now he can send them out 
in a way he never could before. And their faith would never be as strong as it was as soon as they get the Holy Spirit. They are confused. I'll show you in this chapter and the next one. They, don't, they think they know what's going on and they don't know. Just seven weeks later, roughly, is Pentecost. They get the Holy Spirit and Peter, who denied him three times, preaches a, an ingenious sermon and 3,000 people get saved. You think he took a quick course in theology or did the Holy Spirit speak through him? I'll let you figure that one out. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go to the cross, to the tomb, rise, go to heaven, I'll send him to you. Christ sends the Holy Spirit. Um, verse eight, when he comes, he will, I'm going to stop right there. I know it's right in the middle of the sentence. There are those that believe they think about God, the father. Okay. Yahweh is his personal name or Jehovah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Jesus Christ, the sa the savior of the world, the Messiah, personal pronoun, he, but when it comes to the Holy spirit, there's people that think it's kind of like a force. Jehovah's witnesses think this. It's not a personage. It's a force like gravity or electricity. It's a power. The personal pronoun he is used of the Holy Spirit every time. There is a word in Greek for it, meaning the gravity. It made me fall. You could say that in, in Greek or Hebrew. You can't. They never do that here. It's always he. The Holy Spirit speaks. He's a personage. He doesn't have a personal name. It's not Jesus God the Father, which is Yahweh, and Harry the Holy Spirit or anything. We don't know what his name is. He's the Holy Spirit. He tends to not call attention to himself. He only calls attention to Christ and a God the Father. So when he comes, that's why I wanted to stress the he, he will um, convict the world or prove the world to be in the wrong about three things. We got to talk about all three of these, okay? He's going to Convict the world. The word convict in Greek has two meanings. One is convict, meaning like in court, when someone gets convicted of a crime, there's going to be punishment. Is that what he means here? Not primarily, but that is part of the Holy Spirit's ministry. He does convict of sin. He's a louder conscience. And if you ignore that, then you are judged, right? When Christ returns, there's judgment for all sin that hasn't been paid for by Jesus Christ. The other meaning of the word convict is, it's a very close word in English, and it's the word convince. To where one person can be convicted of their sin and just feel guilty and feel terrible, but keep on sinning. But another person can be convicted and convinced, I need a savior. I need to change my life and I, I can't seem to change. Lord Jesus, will you help me? Will you come and live inside of me and be my savior and my Lord? I believe you died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead. When that happens, they are convinced those people are changed from the inside out. So when he comes, the Holy Spirit, you say, was this the first time he's ever been to the earth? No. Old Testament, you read of the Holy Spirit coming upon certain prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, whoever, David, to write scripture, to preach, thus saith the Lord. They're getting it right from God and preaching it out, if you will. But David sins, and he had the Holy Spirit. He sins with Bathsheba, and he prays, I think it's Psalm 51, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
From this and other passages, most scholars believe that in those days, Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could rest upon a prophet to teach for a time, but it wasn't a permanent indwelling. Listen, we have it way better than Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the others. How do you know? Because the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of a believer and never moves, doesn't pack his bags and move out. You can grieve the Holy Spirit with your sin, but he does not leave you. You, We are, Paul uses the word sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promise. So he's going to prove the world wrong or convict the world about three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, let's look at each one of those. And there's a couple different meanings. Um, By the way, in the Old Testament and for the apostles at this time, they would have been convicted mainly by the Old Testament scriptures. Maybe John the Baptist they heard who made them realize their sin. Jesus could have convicted them and their own consciences. Okay, sin, let's deal with that one first. What's sin? First of all, it's an outdated word. You say sin to people like, oh, come on, sin. Such a King James word, sin. It's just people making mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. The word in Greek is hamartia, okay? And it means missing the mark. The perfect thing God has for you to be and do and say, missing the mark. And you can miss by a mile or miss by this much, but it's still sin. When I witness to unbelievers, I I introduce the subject of religion by saying, have you noticed there's a lot of trouble in the world? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could say injustice. Yes, yes. Injustice. Yes. Stealing people, looting buildings and stealing stuff, breaking windows, smash and grab. Yes. And racism. Yes. And um, all this um, perversion is that yes. And people abusing children and you murder and unjust, unjust wars. You can go on and on and on and on and on. rape. Yes, that's a sin and all the bad stuff in the world. You know, there's a Greek word for that. It's hamartia. People are very impressed. Oh, and you know what hamartia is? Sin. But if you say sin, you already lost them. So I always explain that since the Garden of Eden, there's been hamartia everywhere. And the only anecdote is either you pay forever for yours or Christ paid on the cross a couple thousand years ago. No other way to deal with it. Well, I'm just going to be good and I'm going to outweigh my bad deeds with good deeds. You can't do that. So he's going to convict the world regarding sin. Sin, listen, is the truth about man. Romans 3 and goes back to the Old Testament says, there is none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To varying degrees, I may have sinned way more than she did in my life, but we're both sinners. If you sin, you're a sinner, right? And the damage is done. Sin is the truth about man. Righteousness is the truth about Christ and God. Totally sinless, totally perfect. And judgment is the inevitable combination of the truth about man and the truth about God, that he's righteous. He has to judge sin. Um, Remember, at this time, he's about to be convicted. Seven different trials are going to occur. 
he's going to be convicted as a sinner and sentenced to death. The world convicts Jesus of sin, and he's the righteous one, and they think they're righteous, um, and they judge him. And by doing so, the Jews bring judgment on their whole nation. Um, let's see. In the and by the way, that convincing thing is in uh, sixteen eight is sin, pointing out sin toward repentance, convincing to change people's mind. Um, so the verbs I want you to notice in the text of verse eight: sin past tense, righteousness, present tense, judgment, future tense. Wanted to point that out. Okay. And he's going to clarify it. Let's look at verse nine and then 10 and 11. And then we'll talk about it about sin because people do not believe in me. Jesus talking. You say, wait, I thought breaking the 10 commandments, stealing, lying, cheating, committing adultery, having other gods. I thought those were all sins. They are not honoring your father and mother's a sin, right? One of the 10 commandments. Okay, so don't people go to hell for those things? Yes. But ultimately, there is really one sin. The one sin that will guarantee you will go to hell is to live and die your whole life and never believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is unforgivable. That's the unforgivable sin, if you will. So these people are going to convict him and kill him. And the Holy Spirit's going to convict people about sin, making them aware of theirs and their mistake and what they're doing to the Lord Jesus. Okay, um, so let's, let's read all those verses. Sorry, verse 9, about sin because people do not believe in me. That's the big sin. Verse 10, and about righteousness because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. Okay, that one at first was a little confusing to me. Anybody else? Okay. Sin, we understand. He's going to convict the world of sin, verse 9. What about verse 10? About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. When Jesus was on the earth, he was for the first time on planet earth, folks, the only visible picture of perfect righteousness, sinlessness, absolute perfection with God, he lived his life. He never sinned. He never said, thought, or did anything that was outside the will of God. He was doing that job, convicting the world of righteousness. That's why sinners hate Christianity. That's why sinners at that time hated the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very convicting to be around someone who is perfect, right? Okay, so that's the righteousness because he's going to the Father. They're not going to see Jesus anymore. So who's going to do the convicting about righteousness? The Holy Spirit will. And believe it or not, to some extent, he will do it in believers, which makes you and me get the persecution Jesus used to have. The world hates and ridicules Christianity for that reason. Verse 11, so that's sin, righteousness, okay, where well, you can't see me any longer, so the Holy Spirit's going to take over that ministry, and about judgment, verse 11, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Who's that? Satan. Uh, in one of the Corinthian books, Paul calls him the God, small g, of this world. Satan is the chief of sinners. 
if God is going to judge Satan, and we'll get to how, on the cross 2,000 years ago, he certainly will judge and deal with every single junior sinner that's underneath him. Satan became the God of this world, listen, in the Garden of Eden, because there were the population was two, right? Adam, Eve. They were given dominion. Adam was given dominion over the earth, right? Remember all that? Genesis 2 and 3. Satan convinces them to sin, to go against what God said. Ever since, because they went with his word instead of God's, there has been death, sickness, disease, sin, all the other bad stuff, hamartia, right? If you remember no other word, remember hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, Greek for sin. Okay, so Satan is the God, small g, of this world. Keep in mind, that position is temporary. When Christ returns, Satan's little reign of terror is over. When uh, Christ returns, he comes to take the title deed of the earth as the true God of this world, the rightful owner. All things were made by him, through him, and even for him, the Bible says. So, but in the meantime, Satan's the God of this world. Now, listen, if that scares you, listen to this. Satan is on a leash. Satan cannot do whatever he wants. If he comes to kill and destroy, right? If Satan could, he would kill every believer, every Christian right now. And God says, no, hands off. In the book of Job, Satan's talking to God saying, yeah, that guy, you've blessed him. That, no wonder he believes in you. You let me mess with him. He'll curse your name. And God says, okay, go ahead, do what you want. But do you remember in Job? You can't kill him. Because he knows that's what Satan would do. Satan is restrained in some ways by God, okay? You say, I've read the newspapers, pretty evil out there. No kidding. Believe me, it could get way worse. As a matter of fact, during the great tribulation, Satan will finally put one man in power over the whole earth called the Antichrist, who will, you'll see how, how bad could it get bad. Persecution of Christians, Jews, it could get really bad. But it's a short time. Christ returns and is victorious and reigns. Um, okay. About judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. You say, well, yeah, I've been reading the newspaper. It doesn't look like he's condemned to me, Jeffrey Epstein and all the bad stuff going on. He's condemned. You say, how so? Um, keep your finger here and go to Hebrews chapter two. So from John, take a right. You're going to go about 10 or 12 books past all the books uh, that start with a T, the Timothys and the Thessalonians and Titus and all that. Just keep going till you come to Hebrews. If you can't find it, that's okay, but you won't get an A in the class. Hebrews chapter two. Um, and we're going to, let's see. Mm -hmm. um, I think we want verse 15. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. uh I, I miswrote what I wanted. 
gosh, I don't see what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for the one where he defeats Satan here. Um, uh, he suffered death so by grace he might taste death for everyone. That's verse 9. I had it in, as verse 15. Anybody see it? Oh, well. 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him, that's the devil, who holds the power of death. That's the devil. Thank you, whoever said that, you get an A. Um, what's going on there? The devil's power is death. Walter Martin used to say, human beings, the death rate is still one per person. Everyone's going to make it. Everyone's going to die of their last disease or their last accident. No exceptions. God has the right to make an exception. Why didn't Jesus stay dead? Because he never sinned. The wages of sin is death. S Satan made that happen. People have been dying ever since. Jesus comes, dies on the cross, takes away the power of sin for those who believe, so that Jesus says they never die. You say, well, Christians do die physically, yes. Spiritually, they live on instantly. I believe for a believer, the, the moment a believer dies, there is no distinction. They still feel like they're alive, coming out of their body, going to heaven. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, death, where is your sting? Remember all that in one of the Corinthian books? Okay, go back to John now. Um, actually, you know what? We might go to Colossians 2. I lied. Okay, so from John, take a right. Go past the two Corinthian books. Then you come to Galatians, then Ephesians. Keep turning. Philippians, next one, Colossians. Short book, chapter 2. Hopefully the teacher got this one right. Um, if not, I think we should fire him, don't you? Look at, pick it up in verse 13. When you were dead, uh, Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, this is before you were saved. Yes, Paul, go ahead. God made you alive. He quickened you with Christ, born again. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code, that's the law, with all its regulations that was against us, and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. It's as if you and I had a big, long rap sheet with God. All those things you did, Joe, in the 60s and 70s, yes, Christ says now, I paid for all of that on the cross. He's mine. Keep reading. And verse 15, having disarmed, it's like knocking the guns out of people's arms that are bad guys. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Listen, Satan is a defeated foe. He's already been sentenced by God. It can't be reversed. He's still at work. He knows his time is short. I don't know how short, because I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but he's a defeated foe. And his end will be Revelation 20. He's captured and thrown into the pit for a thousand years. Jesus reigns. He lets him out briefly. There's a brief rebellion. Jesus takes him and throws him and the Antichrist and the false prophet, all three, into the lake of fire. That's the end of Satan forever. You never will worry about sin, Satan, temptation, death, sickness ever again, forever. No wonder heaven is so wonderful. Okay. No wonder Jesus can say, because I live, 
you shall live also because he rose from the dead. Um, by the way, Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13 says, speaking to God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. No wonder the Holy Spirit can't live in an unsaved person. Um, people will be convicted of their, of righteousness because they will also see their own self righteousness and how faulty it is. If you read Matthew five, six, seven, that's the sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? It's three chapter, It's a three-chapter sermon by Jesus, all red letters, in which he's trying to show the Jews, you think you're righteous and you're wrong. In that passage, he says, you've heard it said, you should not commit murder. Right? And most of the people in that audience would be going, yeah, I'm good on that one. Keep going, preacher. And he says, but I say to you, if you even hate your brother, or say you fool to somebody, you're just as guilty. In other words, oh, I'm not okay on that one. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say, oh, adultery, no, I'm good on that one. But I say to you, if you've even looked at a person of the opposite sex with lust once, you're guilty. What's the point? To make them feel guilty? Yes. Why? To make them feel bad? No. To make them so uncomfortable, they say, well, then. I'm throwing my hands up. Well, what am I supposed to do? Amen. Oh, I need a savior. Otherwise, there's no hope for me. Amen. In the middle of that sermon, he says, be as good as you can be. No. Be pretty good. Wouldn't that be great? You just go, oh, he's going to grade on a curve. You know what he says? Be perfect as your heavenly fathers. You want to get to heaven? There's two ways. Believe in me or just live a sinless life. Go ahead, be perfect. But since you can't be perfect, you need a savior. That's what five, six, and seven of Matthew is all about. But we're not here to study Matthew, Joe. I know. Let's keep rolling. Um, let's see. Um, do we want to go there? Um, no, we won't, because we did Colossians 2. That's okay. Uh, we already talked about that. So go back to John chapter 16. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. And Patty, you have a question. So, um, and it's got to be like a sentence, sorry, because people can't hear you, and I got to repeat what you say. Sorry. When Jesus dies, all authority has been given to him on, in heaven and on earth. He says that in Matthew 28. She says, uh, it's a good question. I know where you're going. She says, all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. He says that in Matthew 28 and somewhere else I can't think of where. And yet you're telling me, Joe, and you're right, Satan's the God of this world. So the answer to that is um, President Biden was elected in November of 2020. So he was given all authority but he did not take office until January of 2021. 
Do you understand? Jesus has all authority and he is not exercising it yet. That's part of why he returns to the earth to exercise the authority that he has. But he does have the authority to save people right now. And everybody in this room and on Zoom probably have been saved. Satan is still being allowed. He's the old regime that's got to move out by January 21. Let's say January 21 is the second coming. Is it 20th or 21st? 20th, I think, isn't it? I don't know. Anyway, civics lesson 101. Let's keep rolling. But good question. He will exercise all that authority. He's the rightful owner to planet Earth. But he's waiting. Why not just come back now? Because there are still people that you know and I know that aren't saved. He's very patient, not waiting, not wanting any to come to, to perish, but to all to come to repentance who are the ones he's going to save. When he saved the last one, he'll come back that second. All right. Let's keep rolling. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's going to do some convicting about sin, because people don't believe in Jesus. That's the ultimate sin. About righteousness, who really was righteous, not us, self-righteous we were. He was righteous, and Jesus is going to the Father, and you can't see him anymore. That's why he says that there. And verse 11, about judgment, because the prince of this world stands condemned. In other words, if you've seen trials where someone gets the death penalty, they don't say, the judge doesn't say the jury's found you guilty, and they don't point a rifle at him and shoot him right there. He's on death row. He's awaiting execution. That's Satan's situation. He's got a limited amount of time. Evil will greatly increase as the end of the world um, approaches. I think we're seeing that now. If you don't, read the news and watch the news. Okay, verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. He's admitting there's a lot more theology, a lot more doctrine, a lot of stuff you guys don't think you understand. You think you do. Believe me, it's infinite. You don't understand it. He knows you can't bear it right now. And within an hour or two, he's going to be arrested anyway. So, He's telling them there's going to be more to this Christianity thing than what you know right now. But, verse 13, when he, notice male pronoun, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. The Holy Spirit is going to open their minds and download information like you can't believe to these 11 guys and the Apostle Paul, so that many of them are going to write New Testament books who could have never done so unless the Holy Spirit gave them the words. He's going to give them uh, all that Jesus would have liked to have said, but couldn't say it because they couldn't bear it now. They wouldn't understand it. The Holy Spirit's going to guide them into truth. That's why Peter could preach that sermon. He's not going to speak on his own. I want you to notice that. The Holy Spirit and God don't argue over, I think we should tell them this. No, no. They agree 100%. The Holy Spirit's God. The Father's God. The Son is God. They're in absolute unity. He speaks only what he hears from the Father. He'll tell you, notice, what is yet to come. Some of what he'll tell them is the future, much like he told the Old Testament prophets, Thus saith the Lord, this will happen in the future. Are you saying there's prophecy in the New Testament? I am. Um, some of it is coming true as we sit here. 
um, wickedness will increase. Among the, in the Christian church, many fakers will infiltrate. I'm, I'm using a modern word, but that's what the scripture says. And they will assemble for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Turn on Christian TV and you might see some ear itching going on, right? Where they're just telling him, you know, you're, you're a good person. You just need to speak words of faith and good things will happen to you. You can have your best life now, said Joel Osteen incorrectly. I don't want the best life down here. My best life is in heaven. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Um, where were we? Okay, so the Holy Spirit is going to speak the words. Every word of the New Testament, folks, is breathed, God-breathed, okay? This is one of those paradoxes. We don't talk a lot about it. What's a paradox? Two apparent contradictions. You say, well, those both can't be true, and they are. Jesus, fully God, okay, I got it, and fully man. Well, which is, it's both, Okay, um, so who wrote the God, the who wrote First Peter, and who wrote Philippians, and who wrote the Gospel of John? John wrote John, Peter wrote First Peter, and Paul wrote Philippians. Okay, I got it. The Holy Spirit wrote every word. Well, which is it? It's both. Do I understand it fully? No. He inspired the words, and what's interesting is the style of writing stays with the person. John writes very differently than Paul. And yet every word comes from the Holy Spirit. How did John remember these four chapters of red letters? He had a really good memory 60 years later. No, that's when he wrote it about in the around 90 AD. The Holy Spirit almost made him, I believe, see the whole thing again and hear it and write it down. He's not guessing at these words. Okay, so he's got a lot more to say. The Holy Spirit's going to guide them into all truth. Um, he'll tell them what is to come, end time stuff. John gets the book of Revelation, 22 chapters worth of what's going to come. Verse 14, he will glorify, this is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus, because it's from me that he'll receive what he'll make known to you. This is Jesus's gospel, if you will, right from the Father, right from the Holy Spirit, to believers. That's why when you came to Christ and you, the more you heard the gospel, true biblical teaching and a sermon and a Bible study on radio or TV or reading the word, suddenly bing, the lights went on and it started to make sense to you. If you, like me, read the Bible when you weren't saved, anybody here do that besides me? It didn't make a bit of sense to me. Like reading somebody else's mail. Like I, I, don't, I have no idea what's going on here. All of a sudden, the Bible's changed. No, Joe's changed. And the Bible suddenly comes alive. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so he, the Holy Spirit's going to glorify Christ. You hear anybody talk about the Holy Spirit glorifying himself or the Holy Spirit being the, being the big deal? It's wrong. It's always pointing the spotlight away from himself. Christ is the one that receives glory. Um, verse 15, all that belongs to to the Father is mine. We could spend a month on that, may I just say. Everything that belongs to God 
the father, Jesus is saying, is his. Okay? Well, what, what belongs to God? Everything, right? Well, not at my address. I own that house. Really? You think you do? Your car, your house, your body, your, this planet, the solar system, the universe, it's all God's. It's an astounding claim. Thank God. Somebody's saying back there. I love it. Um, thank you, Ken. Um, all that belongs to the Father is mine. It's another way of saying what Patty said a minute ago, isn't it? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. It's all mine. All the deeds of trust have all been signed over to me. It's astounding. But listen, let me make it a little personal for you. Imagine that somebody died and we're reading the will now. Okay. And the will says to, and it's your name. Oh, I'm going to get something. I'm going to inherit something. What matters is, well, what did the guy have that died? Well, nothing, you know, had a couple shirts and a pair of pants. Oh, great. What's, do I get the pants or the shirt? On the other hand, if the guy is the richest man in the world, you're all ears, aren't you? What do I get? You're going to inherit what Christ has, Christ's riches. That's where we get our inheritance, heaven, being with him. Unbelievable. And it's not material goods, don't get me wrong. Um, we're going to take our two-minute break in just about two minutes. So um, stay tuned. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. Very good. On Zoom, are you awake? I see you. See you, Susan, there. Okay. Let's keep rolling. All that belongs to the Father's mind, verse 15. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he'll make known to you. The Spirit is going to make known exactly who and what Jesus is and what he has. And guess whose it is now? You are co-heirs, the Bible says, with Christ. It's an incredible thing. Jesus went on to say, verse 16, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a while, you'll see me. What? At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what? What does he mean by saying in a little while, you'll see me no more? And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. What is he saying? In a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. Okay. That could mean when he gets arrested, most of them don't see him again. Right? Peter and John kind of hang out outside the trial and they see him again. It could mean when he dies. Right? Oh, no. That's so final. We'll never see him again. And for two and a half days, they don't see him. That's a little while, a couple of days, and then you'll see me again. He rises from the dead and appears to them and freaks them out. You remember Luke 24, they think they're seeing a ghost. And he says, I'm not a ghost. Look, I have flesh and bone. Notice he doesn't say flesh and blood. He bled out for you and me. I've got flesh and bone. And he says, do you have anything to eat? Spirits don't eat. Let me have some fish. And he eats in front of them to show them it's really me. I'm here again. Let's take our two-minute break. I'm going to turn my video and, and uh, mic off, but that doesn't mean I'm going away. I'll be right back. We're just doing this to stretch our aging bodies. I'll see you in two minutes. Find your seats back there, if you will, and we'll get started again. A couple quick things I want to mention. Um, I need a bullhorn. Yeah. Someone gave me a a judge's gavel to use at Bible study. 
Did I ever use it? No, I thought it was kind of pretentious, but I thought it was a cool idea. Um, Jesus is going to, uh, he says the Holy Spirit's going to give them more information. You say, well, where is that information? That's the four gospels, the whole New Testament, the book of Acts. It's all the epistles. It's revelation. Yes, thank you. It's all of the above. Jesus gives them the rest via the apostles um, and the writers of the New Testament. Luke wasn't an apostle, but he writes two books of the New Testament. Um, and neither was Jude. Anyway, uh, we're going to skip that for now. I had a couple of things I wanted to tell you. Um, other reappearances of Jesus, you say a little while and then would be, some scholars say, Pentecost, where Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up. You remember? Tongues of fire, wind, incredible evangelism goes on. All kinds of people get saved. It's Jesus coming back in the form of the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is called a couple times the Spirit of Christ. Kind of interesting. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And we talked about that. Okay. Let's keep rolling. So he just said a little thing. It sounds like a riddle after a little while, you'll see me no more. Then after a while, you'll see me. So verse 17, the, the, what they, they, they have no idea. Um, I want you to notice verse 17. Did you notice something unusual? Verse 17 at this, some of his disciples said to one another. Listen, if you have a question, it's okay to ask your pastor. It's okay to ask me. You know what? Ask God. They should be asking him. He's right there at the table or walking, and they're going, what, what does he mean by that? Why don't they just ask him? They're asking one another. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet, hence the confusion. Why ask somebody else without the Holy Spirit? Let's ask the only guy there with the Holy Spirit, Jesus, what did you mean? So he has to butt in. Um, they Notice verse 18. They kept asking. The tense of the verb is ongoing. What does he mean? I don't know. What do, you, what do you think he means? I don't know. What does it mean? What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Verse 18. Verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. See, they're kind of embarrassed to say, okay, I'm, I'm this dumbest one here. I don't get it. What I learned in college is the smartest guy in the class is the guy that says, I don't get it. Could you explain that again? While the rest of us are going, we get it. And thinking, I don't know what he's saying, right? The smartest one is the one that asks the question. So Jesus says, uh, I know that you want to ask me about it. Verse 19, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a while, you'll see me. Here it comes. Very truly, I tell you, verse 20, that's his way of saying, listen up, this is very important. Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I tell you. Verse 20, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. What? What's that? That's the death of Christ. The arrest, the whipping, the beating, the horrible, torturous death he died that you deserved and he took, that I deserved and he took. The world goes, yes. Remember the world in the gospel of John, cosmos is the Greek word. It means the unsaved world. Satan, demons, 
and all unsaved people, the ones that yelled, crucify him, all those phony Jewish religious leaders that yelled, crucify him, that stirred up the crowd, they rejoiced. They had barbecues and parties and pinatas. The day Jesus dies, we finally got him. You, uh, verse 20, will weep and mourn. No wonder they put everything into this ministry and he's dead. Plus he's their friend and they love him and they know he was innocent. They mourn, the world rejoices. Got the picture so far? Okay, verse 20, uh, that was. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. There's two extremes for you. They aren't, they aren't a little bummed out Friday night. They are grieving, right? None of them can bring themselves to deal with the dead body. It takes Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to deal with the dead body. Where's Peter, James, and John, his best buddies? Hiding in the upper room, freaked out. He's dead. A bloody mess. They beat him up and killed him. You will grieve. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. When's that? Sunday morning, right? Friday's a bummer. Saturday's a bummer. On the third day, he rises and they rejoice, but not at first. You read the resurrection accounts, they freak out. They can't believe it. It's, it. It can't be. The women see him first. You remember at the tomb, they come to these disciples. We saw him. Yeah, right. Wives' tales, old ladies' tales. That's what they call it, the disciples. But Peter and John run to the tomb. You remember? And the tomb's empty. What do you know? But they still haven't seen him. But there's hope now. It's beautiful. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. May I? parenthetically say, I'm going to pull that scripture out for a second, and I'm going to apply it to you. Have you grieved? Are you grieving now? Are you sad about the way your life is? Are you sad about the way the world is, or the country is, or your family is, or your friends are, or your finances are, or your health is, or your, you've lost a loved one, or whatever it may be? Listen, your grief will be turned to joy. I will guarantee you that on the basis of not me, the word of God. How can you say that? Because your future is absolutely glorious. Absolutely glorious. If you lost a loved one that was a believer, you will see them again in a little while. Just like Jesus said, right? If your life is going horribly, you live behind enemy lines. This is what you should expect. The world hates you. The devil hates you. But your future is absolutely glorious. Your grief, I guarantee you, will be turned to joy. If you're alive when, the, when Christ returns, talk about joy. If you die before that, in an instant, you'll be joyful in heaven with the Lord. Okay. Verse 21, he's going to give them an analogy now. A woman giving birth. Verse 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain, birth pangs. Can I get an amen, ladies? Okay, <laughs> they don't sound that happy about it. 
Um, I watched two babies being born. I'll tell you right now, if men had the babies, the population of the earth would be way, way less, way less. God knew what he was doing, giving the women that task. Um, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, right? The thing about birth pangs, by the way, birth pangs are used in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the end times. He calls wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, um, uh, famines, uh, conflicts, false prophets. He calls those things in Matthew 24. Don't turn there now. He calls those, listen, birth pangs or birth pains. The thing about birth pains that as a man, I never knew, I know it now, is they start kind of mellow. Oh, a little pain. And they're far apart. In 20 minutes, oh, another little pain. Oh, we better start timing the pain, the pains, honey. They get more and more intense, ladies, and closer and closer and closer and closer in time, don't they? In the same way, those birth pangs at the end of the world are going to happen. Earthquakes, famines, all that stuff I mentioned are going to happen closer and closer together and bigger in scale. Uh, all leading up to a new birth. Were you talking about when Christ returns? Yes. Are you talking about when Jesus rises from the dead? Yes, both. He's primarily talking about the second one. Watch. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish, the pain, because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Translation, boys, you 11 are going to have a huge bummer for a little while. When I die, you're going to grieve. Okay? That's a birth pang. And it's going to be very hard for you. Peter's going to deal with the guilt of denying him three times. The others are going to deal, all of them abandon him at Garden of Gethsemane when he gets arrested. They all split. They're all going to be dealing with that and the loss of their friend and the fact that the guy they thought was a Messiah is now in a grave. Like what just happened? And yet the birth is he comes out of the earth, raised from the dead. And that is so glorious. They're going to forget how much of a bummer it was those other two and a half days. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish of her because of her joy that a child's been born into the world. In other words, birth pangs aren't fun, but in the end, it's all, listen, worth it, right? It was worth it for those couple of days without him because as soon as he rises from the dead, they see him again. They, the lights start to go on. They start to really understand, don't they? Okay. Um, so with you, now he's talking about a woman with birth pangs. Now he's going to say, He's going to explain it. Verse uh, 22. So with you, now is your time of grief. It's about to start. You're going to see me freak out in Gethsemane and you guys are going to fall asleep on me. Remember that? Stay awake and pray, boys. Remember, they're all, they're all out like a light. But verse 22, I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one, this is interesting, will take away your joy. Your joy will remain. Your joy will abide. In other words, there'll be conflicts. There'll be other things in your life, 
but you'll have a settled joy that everything I told you was true, that I rose from the dead, which is a picture of what will happen to each of you, 11, and all of you in this room and all of you on Zoom and anyone who believes. I will see you again and you'll rejoice. No one will take away your joy. Does that only apply to him rising from the dead? I don't think so. Most of the scholars I read said it applies to the second coming as well. Might even apply to Pentecost when they get the Holy Spirit. But when we see him again, second coming, we will rejoice and no one will take away our joy. Verse 23, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Okay, so 23 needs a little bit of explanation. Um, let's see, do we want to go there yet? No, I don't think so. Um, you know how you're, you can tell if you're a little nuts, if you talk to yourself anyway, and then you answer yourself, that's even worse, right? Yeah. You know what this is? Mental floss. Okay. Just trying to keep you awake. Let's keep rolling. Shall we? Um, okay. What's he saying here in verse 23 in that day, you won't ask, you'll no longer ask me anything. Okay. He's talking about not just the resurrection. Not the post, not just the post-resurrection appearances. He's talking about the, listen, it's this, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension into heaven. That's an important part people forget of the salvation Jesus Christ provides. If he just died and rose and hung around on the earth and, and you know, got a little house in the Bahamas and lived happily ever after, if he doesn't go to the Father, then the sacrifice has not been accepted by God. Nobody gets saved. He's got to ascend to the Father for that reason and for the reason to send the Holy Spirit, which we talked about earlier. Are you with me? Okay. Um, so uh, verse 23, he's talking about the full package. Once he dies, once he rises, once he goes to heaven, ascends, they watch him in Acts chapter 1, right around verse 9, 10, and 11. After that, they don't ask him any questions. He does not mean you'll understand everything the second you see me rise from the dead. They don't, right? They're asking questions in Acts chapter 1 before he leaves. But once he's gone, they won't ask him any questions. Now, this sounds a little silly, but I read a lot of commentaries on this, and this is what they all said. The reason they don't ask him any questions, because he's not there anymore. And they have the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, lights are going on. They remember, wait, remember when he said this? Yes. And remember when he said that and this and that? Oh, they don't need to ask him any questions. They can't ask him any questions. He's ascended to heaven. And that day, you'll no longer ask me anything. But there's a bonus. Very truly, I tell you, this is still 23. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Because questions wise, they won't have any questions because the Holy Spirit will be filling them. Okay. Um, however, they will have needs and concerns because they're about to be sent. Thomas is going to go way into the east, into India, some people say even into China, spreading the gospel. Some are going to go north, some are going to go west. They, they spread out, and there's going to be great need, because Christianity at that time is a fledgling little group of people. 
okay, a few disciples, a few hundred, maybe a few thousand, and they start spreading out as persecution happens. It makes them spread out. So they're going to need direction from God. They're going to need funds to be able to eat and do what they're going to do. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Okay. That's the qualifier in my name. We won't turn there because we did before. He says a similar thing in chapter 14. Um, the point is this, what does it mean to ask in Jesus name? Well, you just ask for a Mercedes. And at the end of the prayer, you say in Jesus name, and then you look to see if it's in the driveway and it's not there. Didn't work. What does in Jesus name mean? It means according to God's will. John, 1 John 5, I think it's 14 or 15, says, if we ask anything, listen, and it be in accordance with his will, we know that he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have the thing that we ask for. So some things are in the, listen, revealed will of God. Some things are in the unrevealed will of God. Give me an example. Okay. Unrevealed will of God. I've got a job opportunity in Seattle and another one in Houston. I don't know which one to take. I'm praying, God, will you show me which one I should take? It's in the unrevealed will of God. You can't look that up in the Bible, right? In the book of Job. Oh, wait, it's Job. Never mind. On the other hand, so you just pray and ask God, please show me. Close doors to one and open doors to the other. Please lead me. Unrevealed. Okay. Revealed will of God. Should I try heroin, Lord? Now you're laughing, but you'd be surprised. Should I date this girl instead of my wife? And, you know, because maybe that's what I want to do. You don't have to ask. Revealed will of God. The answer is no. Don't. Don't do it. Should I get drunk? Do you really need to ask? Some things we don't know. I'll tell you this. Have you asked and you get nothing? Do you know what that is? Wait. That's what it is. He's building your faith. I'll guarantee you, if it's his will, he'll do it or something better, not something worse. But we ask in his name. In other words, it is a prayer that is asked based on what Jesus would want. Cheat on my wife, get drunk, try heroin. No, no, no. Spread the gospel, probably, right? But his timing is not your timing. Have you done this? Lord, I really need this, and I'll give you till Thursday at 2.30 to make it happen. Who are you? Who am I? You think he's at heaven going, set a timer for Thursday at 1? Kind of silly. We don't know some things, but whatever will bring glory to Christ, that's a good thing to ask yourself. Does the Mercedes bring glory to Christ? Yes, I'll put Jesus on the license plate, I promise. Does it bring glory to Jesus? Okay, no. Rolex watch, no. A ministry, witnessing to somebody, you're praying for your unsaved loved ones? Yes, right? I'll give you a revealed will of God prayer that you can pray, and I will personally guarantee you he will answer this prayer. You ready? In your life, there's one particular sin that you deal with more than the others. 
We all sin in a variety of ways. I get it. But there's one area, anger, not being forgiving, forgiven, forgiving, sorry, to others, lust, stealing, lying, um, coveting other things, or wanting personal approval from people, which is a way of making yourself get worship, which is violating the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. Okay, whatever your main area of sin is, let's say it's alcohol. Let's say it's drugs. I can't stop using drugs. I can't stop drinking. Can't stop cheating on my wife. Okay, if you pray to God, please, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, take away from me the desire for that. Do you think God would say no? No, that's totally his, what, you're, what prayer actually is, is praying God's will, listen, back to him. It's not asking for stuff for me. It's what do you want me to do? I've read your word. Here's what I believe you want. If this is your will, please do it. Central phrase, I say it a lot in the Lord's prayer, thy will be done. That's the best thing always. We think we know what we want. If a three-year-old prays, he's going to pray for candy, candy, candy. Not good for you, right? So the answer is no. We don't realize we pray for candy a lot, right? Okay, here's a weird one, though. Prayer. I'm in a lot of pain, God. Please get me out of this. I'm in a jam. Get me out of this. We've all done that. Come on, right? It's understandable. Who likes pain? Who likes being in a jam? However, God may want us in that jam a little while longer because there's a lesson he wants to teach us. Do I know what the lesson is? No. It might be humility. It might be patience. It might be faith. I don't know. But we can pray with the confidence, please, God, teach me all I need to learn from this situation. And then I pray you'd release me. I believe you will. But that earlier prayer I said, if you struggle with, I can't forgive so-and-so, if you give that to God and say, will you take that anger from me and give me a forgiving heart toward him? He, I guarantee you will do it. Why would he say, no, I want you to keep sinning? He would never, it's against his nature. Okay. You say, move on, Joe. Okay. I, we, I will. Um, um, verse 24, until now, you've not asked for anything in my name ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Why haven't they asked for anything in his name? First of all, I don't think they knew they could. Second of all, he's there with them. He's talking about asking the father in the name of Jesus. Prayer in the Bible is asking God in the name or the authority of the power of the will of Jesus through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit all three of the Trinity. Until now, you haven't been asking for anything in my name. I'm not going to be here, guys, he's saying. So ask, and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. We could spend a month on that phrase. Your joy will be complete. When I was a kid, I got a new, brand new bike blue 10 speed within a week i had crashed on it and there was a scratch and it was like ah two years later it was stolen out of our, out of our garage on curtner avenue in san jose 
in my life, one thing I've learned is when I love things, I can't wait to get that keyboard or that guitar or this car, or if we could only get that house or that, it's always huh, not as good as you thought. Your joy is never complete with earthly things. You remember the story of, this is a long one, but I'll try to make it quick. Do you remember the story of uh, Leah and Rachel in the Bible? Old Testament, right? Genesis. Jacob falls in love with Rachel. Do you remember? I'll do anything for Rachel. I'll work for you for free for seven years if I can have your daughter, dude, he says to the father. Remember? If I could have Rachel, that would be it. He works seven years for the father. Problem is the father is a conniving criminal, just like Jacob is. And the father has an older daughter named Leah, who's not as attractive. And the rule is the older daughter gets married first. So they have a wedding and the father dresses Leah up with veils and you can't really see who it is under there. And they exchange vows and Jacob gets his first night alone with what he thinks is Rachel and spends the night with her and just has a great time. And there's that phrase in the old in Genesis, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Listen, did you get a new bike in the morning? Behold, it's Leah. A new car, a new job. Look at these, the shirt. Oh, there's a spot on the shirt. It's always something. That's God's way of saying, don't get so attached to the stuff on this planet. It's all going to burn. In the morning, behold, it's Leah, right? However, praying to the Father in his name, praying his will back to him, behold, your joy will be complete. May I insert the words for the first time, right? No husband, no wife, no child. If I could just have a child, if I could just have a perfect wife or husband or this house, or, nothing's going to do it for you. Nothing. Pat Blaise Pascal, famous philosopher, mathematician, Christian, is the guy that coined the term that inside every human being, you can't see it with an x-ray or an MRI, there's a God-shaped hole, vacuum, and everybody knows it. And we try to fill that with stuff and good looks and money and power and fame and PhDs and Rolex watches and Mercedes and nothing works. And then you put God in there and what does it say? And your joy will be complete. Verse 25, though I've been speaking to you, Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. Notice they still haven't asked. Tell us about God the Father. What is it like being face to face? They're just, what about us, dude? We're going to be bummed out. Okay. He's been speaking to them sort of in parables and in a little while, you'll see me, and you won't see me, and then you will see me, all that, right? He says, pretty soon, I'm going to tell you plainly about my father. 
He really does it to the most degree, the, the greatest degree in Acts chapter two and following when they get the Holy Spirit. Then they have the equipment to dial in to radio KG, KGOD and hear everything from the Father they need to. Let's see. The time's coming. I'm not going to use that kind of language. I'll tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, verse 26, you'll ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. You say, what was that? Okay, listen. Some people think you need a go-between, okay? So that's why Catholics will um, confess to a priest. So the priest can tell God, he's sorry. And then you say penance, which is sort of using prayer as a punishment, right? Oh, you sinned really bad. 11 Hail Marys, 13 Our Fathers. So then you go to the altar and you go, Our Father, as fast as you can say it. Like God's counting, that's four. Hail Mary, full of grace of the Lord. Listen, what he's saying in these verses is you can go direct. Do you remember, those of you that are older like me, there was a day when you could dial zero on your phone and get an operator and go, I'd like to make a call to St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, what's the number? Area code, blah, 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 you know, and it, right? You need to have, the operator can help you. Then later on, they dial one in the area code, you can dial direct. If you wanted to call the White House, do you think you could get the president on the phone? No, you'd get some underling. He's saying here, in that day, you'll ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. Don't think, hey, Jesus, put in a good word for me. This is what I need. You can talk to God directly. That's what he's saying. Anywhere you are, anytime, with a thought, with a whisper, with a word, anything. Why? Why now? Because in that day, he will have paid for the sins of all who believe. He will have risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Therefore, that wall of separation is torn apart for you. You can go direct. God communing with people again, like Adam and Eve before they sinned. Do you remember when Jesus dies on the cross um, and the curtain in the temple is torn? Anybody remember that? Okay, let's say that this building, those of you on Zoom can't see the whole building, but you can see behind me. This is a building and this is the temple. And this is where people worship and the priests do some things up here. But behind me, you see the platform there and it's an open, anybody could walk up there. Not so. In the Jewish temple, that would be the Holy of Holies. There would be a, a curtain separating us sinful people from the presence of God in that little room, about the size of a bedroom. In there was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that budded. And the mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. And one human being could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's the high priest. And it was totally scary to go in there because God might strike you dead. 
That's the presence of God in there. No wonder we're separated. We're all sinners. The curtain was the thickness of a man's hand, Josephus writes. And if you got two teams of horses, Josephus writes, and tied half to one and half to the other and whipped them and they ran away, they couldn't tear it apart. Can't get through there. The high priest would go in there once a year with a rope tied around his leg, his ankle. What? Why? Because if Les is the high priest and he goes in there and dies, are you going in there to get him out? The rope was, and you go, Les, hey, Les, if there's no answer, pull. Yeah. <laughs> Les said, pull. We would pull him out. The high priest would also wear bells when he went in there. So that ding 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 Oh, he's still alive. So far, so good, Les. ding ding Listen, when Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, the, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. Why from top to bottom? Because God was saying the wall of separation between people and God is now open for those who believe. Everybody who just got their sins paid for can walk in without bells, without a rope, no fear. We go boldly into the throne room of God, Hebrews says, because he paid the price. That's why Jesus is saying, don't think that I'm going to ask God for you. You're going to ask God yourself. It's an amazing thing. When you pray to God, do you realize the God of the universe who made the stars and the moon and everything there is, you can talk to him without an operator, without, please press one for, right? You just talk to God. It's an astounding thing that we have that as prayer. I'm giving a sermon this Sunday at the church, and I'll give you a preview of a weird thing we're going to talk about. The word in the passage I'm teaching on, the word saint appears twice, okay? If you were raised Catholic, a saint is Oh my gosh, a saint is someone who died, first of all, who was so holier than everybody else that we can now pray to that person. Because you want, put in a good word for me, especially Mary, you can pray to Mary in Catholicism. Put, who better to ask than Jesus' mother? Please put in a good word for me. Wrong. We go direct. You don't need, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And even in prayer, we just pray in his name because he tore that wall, right? Of separation. I wonder, don't you, if you were a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader and Jesus died and there was an earthquake and it was dark in the middle of the day for no reason, not an eclipse. And then you walked in the temple and that huge thick curtain was torn in half. Wouldn't you say, hmm, something's going on here. That's never happened. They must have quickly sew, get some seamstresses in here. Let's sew this thing up. We can't let people see. This is a weird thing, right? Probably just a coincidence that he died at the moment that happened and the earthquake and the darkness and the, yeah, right. Um, just about out of time. So, um, I'm not saying, verse 26, that you, I will ask the Father on your behalf. He's not saying that. No, the Father himself 
loves you. Christians say that all the time. You know, God loves you. He does. He says it right here. The Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me, and I am the only antidote to being SIN positive. Right? You heard HIV positive? We're all SIN positive. The only antidote is Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're going to pay for your own sins forever. And you've believed that I came from God. Verse 28, and we'll quit. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world, going back to the Father. I came from the Father. Do you know how long he was with the Father before he became a baby in Bethlehem? Forever. I heard a thing today, uh, yesterday, that Augustine, I think it was the church father, said that God doesn't have plenty of time. He has no time. He created time when he created space, matter, and energy, and, you know, everything that is. So it isn't like, well, how many years was Jesus forever? There's no time. Same thing in heaven. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, it's, it's like the first day. There'll be no time. Can we understand that and comprehend it? No. Do I? No. But it's a cool thing. He came from the Father, entered the world as a baby to a poor family. We know that. Um, and there was no room at the end. And now, around 33, 34 years later, now I'm leaving the world. I'm going to die. And I'm going back to the Father. Wow. Why was he willing to do it? Because he loves you loves me. Let's pray and we'll get out of here. Father, we're so thankful for these lessons. A lot to digest, God. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. God living inside of us, it blows my mind every time I think about it. Guiding us, leading us, illuminating us, making the Bible come alive, convicting us of sin, drawing us closer. What an amazing thing. Giving us the words to say when we teach a Bible study or preach a sermon or talk to a friend about Jesus. Thank you that like birth pangs, today we see some things happening, God, and the time's getting closer. I don't know when, but in our world, we see these things, and although they're a little scary, we rejoice because what do you know? What you said, what Christ said, what the Bible says is true. And so we get the feeling that in a little while, we'll see you again. And we can't wait. But in the meantime, use us for your glory, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know if you're here in this room. And those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thanks for being here. See you next week, God willing. Thanks for coming.